It's go time. Previously on Third Down Gamble. Last week was uh, was done real well. Huge tarps on the field over top of the massive logo, and they pulled the tarps off, and uh, there the logo was. And it wasn't really a, a media event. It was just more of an unveiling. They didn't even have a, a media availability afterwards. They didn't have a lot of people there. You are listening live to Quick Kicks, a presentation of Third Down Gamble. Welcome, everyone, and we have a very special guest from Winnipeg, Manitoba, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Bob Irving. I am absolutely thrilled that you have joined our podcast. Well, it's my pleasure, Don. Always uh, happy to talk football, especially in these times when we haven't had football for a long time. So, yeah, let's go. Now, let's before we get into that stuff, let's go back to how you got into broadcasting in the first place. I know you started in Saskatchewan. Right. So where did you uh, learn your craft and how did that uh, parlay into getting that Winnipeg job? Sure. Okay. Well, I first of all, I'd say I grew up as a super sports fan, a sports fanatic like you and many thousands of others. And I went to university for a year at the University of Regina taking in a, a computer course. And it struck me that uh, I wasn't going to be very happy in whatever line of work this might lead me to. And I always wanted to do something that was sports related. So long story short, I was able to cut some audition tapes and send them out to a bunch of radio stations in Saskatchewan. I got hired by CJSL in Estevan in 1969. I got my foot in the door, $200 a month I was making. So after about a year, I moved to CKX in Brandon, 1970. And I still wasn't doing sports at either of those places. I was doing mostly news and Brandon, I did some TV work, TV hosting, but very little sports casting, which is what I ultimately wanted to do. And that's why I got into the business. But I realized that the number of sports jobs was limited. So I spent three years in Brandon and luckily got hired by CJOB in Winnipeg in the fall of 1973, September of 1973. And I've been at CJOB ever since. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Uh, I got hired as a full-time sports guy. CJOB was a station that was dedicated to sports coverage went out of their way to cover sports. And so I fell right into a perfect situation. And I feel when I look back at my career and the start I had, I just feel very lucky that I got that job at CJOB in 1973. And then in 1974, I believe you started to broadcast Winnipeg Blue Bomber games. Right. We had both the Jets and the of the WHA and the Blue Bomber broadcast rights. And Kenny Nicholson, uh, who I worked for, great guys, and he's been gone for a long time now, but he was doing both. And there were conflicts, and it just wasn't working out. And so they came to me, the program director came to me and said, uh, you know, you're going to have to do the football. And I remember I said, well, I, but I've never done play-by-play. He said, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. <laughs> that, was, that was my sort of introduction to play-by-play. Just go and do it. They threw me in the water, threw me in the deep end, and uh, and it worked out okay. And maybe that's the best way to do it. I don't know. But anyway, that was a great break for me to get a chance to do play-by-play because those of us in our business, play-by-play is really where it's at. It's the most fun thing we do. I've said that over and over and over again of all the work that we do in the radio business in particular, and I enjoy it all. But play-by-play is the most exhilarating, the most exciting. And so, yeah, I was very fortunate to get a chance to do it again I thank my lucky stars. I got hired at CJOB because the opportunities were at CJOB and some other places they might not have been the same. So away I went doing the Blue Bomber games. Well, that's wonderful. It's not often that we get our dream job. 
That's right. That's right. And I never had any sort of preconceived idea about doing football play-by-play per se. I just wanted to be a sportscaster. That's all I wanted to be. And I really didn't have a lot of thoughts or lofty goals about where I thought it would take me. I thought I would just be happy if I could, every day I wake up, go in and talk about sports to people, whether it was just reading sportscasts or interviewing people or whatever. And then to be able to do play-by-play on top of that was icing on the cake. Now you came into the situation with Winnipeg when they were sort of a Midland team at that time for a few years, and they were transitioning from Don Jonas to, well, Chuck Ailey was actually there for a little bit with Dieter Brock. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember it well. Well, it's interesting. I tell this story. Don Jonas, of course, was the outstanding player, and I'm losing track of years here, 72, I think, 71 or 72. Anyway, uh, in 74, the Bombers had played in Regina on Labor Day weekend, as always, and they won the game to even their record at three and three. And we flew home with the team. And as we got off the plane and walked through the airport, the general manager, Earl Lensford, pulled Don Jonas aside. And Kenny Plain and I, who were doing the games, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, I wonder what's going on there. Well, it turns out they just traded Jonas to, to Hamilton for Chuck Ely, which was a stunner for the fans in Winnipeg because Jonas really owned the town. He could run for mayor. Everybody loved him. But he was... He got off to a poor start that year, although they had bounced back and won three games in a row. So anyway, yeah, I went through then the, the Bud Riley era, and Chuck Ely was, was there only for a short time before Dieter Brock came in and played 10 great years, quarterback for the Blue Bombers. So, yeah, I've got great memories of all those years, different coaches, different great players, and some good years, not some pretty bad years, too. It runs the gamut, believe me. Well, that's the life of a football team. There's years you're happy to be there, and there's years which you turned out the lights before the season started. Yeah, that's right. They uh, And it was interesting because when Bud Riley was the coach and Dieter Brock took over as quarterback, they had a very innovative offensive style at that time. This was the... Uh, mid to late 70s and they used the slot back a lot and a lot of quick passing and that sort of thing which it wasn't revolutionary but there wasn't a lot of it the same way the bombers did it at that time so it was it was exciting to be around they never quite got to the point where they had a championship team uh, and then of course from 78 to 82 when the Eskimos won those five great cups in a row. The Bombers had some very good teams, some very good teams, but not quite good enough. Yeah, they met in a couple of Western finals. That's right. Uh, And there was a great frustration, I know, among the players and the fans, too, because Dieter Brock was a quarterback. He won the Most Outstanding Player Award two years in a row. Uh, Again, they had really good teams. But the Eskimos, that was a dynasty. In my view, maybe the greatest team in CFL history that I've covered. And I know the bomber teams from the 50s and 60s under Bud Grant were really good too. That was a bit before my time. But that Edmonton team was, they were something else. And it wasn't until 84 that you finally got through. Yeah. And it wasn't Dieter Brock. No. Well, that's right. Yeah, it was uh, Dieter had made some noise uh, about wanting out of, not necessarily wanting out of Winnipeg, but I think he wanted a little more money. And uh, it's too bad the way that, unfolded because Dieter wasn't a bad guy although in that scenario he came off as a bad guy anyway he got traded to Hamilton Tom Clements came back I'll never forget a quick story I was sitting in Cal Murphy's office one day we did a daily radio show and we were shooting the breeze after we recorded the show and this was during the midst of a sort of a crisis with Brock because he wasn't happy and his agent Gil Scott was making noise and Cal had a smile on his face and I said what are you smiling about he said 
I got a trade cooking that's really going to work out well. And it was for Tom Clements. And he wouldn't tell me that at the time, but that's what it was. Anyway, uh, Tom Clements came over and, yeah, they won the Grey Cup in 84, ended a 22-year drought. And that bomber team and the, and the teams of the next four years, 85, 86, 87, with Clements at quarterback, boy, Don, they were outstanding teams. Never won another Grey Cup. And Cal Murphy always said, I think he said the 87 team was as good a team as he had in all the years he coached the Bombers. He always felt it bothered him that they came up short because he thinks they should have won more with that team. And then in 88, with a different quarterback, they actually break through again. Yeah, well, Sean Salisbury was the quarterback in... Salisbury was 88, and 1990 was Tom Burgess when they won the Great Cup. That's right, yeah, I have to think about that. But yeah, Salisbury, and he was only there for a year and a little bit before he wore out his welcome. That's another sort of sordid story of Palmer quarterbacks. But yeah, they won in 88, probably against all odds. The team wasn't that good that year. They were better in in 1990, and yeah, they routed Edmonton 50-something to, I can't remember the score, but they were really- 50 to 10, yeah. Yeah, they really put it to Edmonton. Uh, Greg Battle had a great game. They had a terrific team that year, too. They really did. Now, what was it like growing up with the, the team in your broadcasting career being a Western Division team, and all of a sudden now they're representing the East in the Grey Cup? That never felt right, you know, and I, we understand why they did it. The CFL's had all these ups and downs and things that have occurred over the years, but it never felt right for Winnipeggers to be in the East. We have been called the gateway to the West. That's the name our city had decades ago, uh, but we're a Western city. We view ourselves as Western Canadians, and there's no discussion about that. That's who we are. So when the Bombers were in the East, it did feel odd. There's no doubt about that, but, you know, you... Uh, sort of play with the hand you're dealt and it was a little easier to get out of the east some of those years than it would have been the west so yeah the biggest uh, stumbling block typically during those years was toronto yeah yeah they were good yeah and they i know the bombers beat them in a final and i think they beat the bombers in a final at winnipeg thought they should have won it might have been 87 as a matter of fact uh my memory gets a little clouded because the years run together after a while but yes toronto was good and they were a nemesis for the bombers and likewise the other way around too one of the things that i'm curious about people refer to you as knuckles where did that come from well, I got that from Jack Wells, one of the great uh, characters of broadcasting, one of the legends of broadcasting in Canada, never mind Winnipeg. Uh, when I started covering the Bombers and traveling with them, Jack was on our broadcast team, and he was famous for giving people nicknames. And I was a nervous flyer, I still am. And back then, back in the day, they used to call people who were nervous flyers white knucklers because you'd grip the seat and your knuckles would turn white. And on one flight in particular, Jack noticed this uh, fear that I had, and he started laughing, and he said, oh, Knuckles. And that, so that's where I got the nickname. And when Jack gives you a nickname, you've got it for life. And it's fine. I, I don't mind that at all, but that's where it came from. People think it, it was a little more glamorous than that or that I got in a fight somewhere along the road or something. But no, I'm a white knuckle flyer, and that's how I got it. From 87 to 1990, you were a broadcasting with the Canadian Football Network. What brought about the Canadian Football Network? Well, as best I remember, Doug Mitchell was the commissioner, and he was having a hard time getting a television deal with a network that he thought was worthwhile or would provide the league with the money that he thought they should get. And I, I can't remember all the details, but he decided, Doug decided, that he'd try to form his own network and run the games on global television stations across the country. So that's what he did. 
And I was called, Dave Hodge and I were called to do the play-by-play, and we each did roughly half the games over that four-year period. And when I was approached about it, we had lost the Bomber broadcast rights for a couple of years, the radio rights. And I was given the green light by our people at CGOB to go ahead and do the, the games on TV as long as I could keep up with the rest of my work. And it was, it was kind of neat. I, I enjoyed it, but I, I've said to people over and over since that time that I still prefer radio. You know, radio is, it's more personal and uh, I shouldn't say more personal, but when you're on camera, you're not as comfortable as you are, at least I'm not when you're just doing radio. So I love radio where nobody's looking at you and you don't have to be, you don't have to think about, you know, whether your hair is combed or, you know, anything like that. Uh, so I was happy to get back to radio, but I love the TV experience. It was great. I did about 80 games over those four years. Uh, I did a, a couple of great cup games on the Canadian football network, worked with Neil Lumsden and Nick Pastia and Tommy Larshide and some, and Dave Hodge and some John Shannon was our producer and he was sensational. He's a he's a brilliant mind when it comes to producing television. He went on to great success with the National Hockey League. So, yeah, th- those were fun years. But I was I'm a radio guy. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being a radio guy. I've done it myself. One of the things that I always liked about calling a game on radio is if you screwed up, nobody knew. <laughs> well, that's right. It's, it's a little more difficult these days when every game's on TV. Uh, but you're right. If somebody's listening solely on radio and not sort of syncing to the to the TV, which, you know, it still happens a lot. You're right. Uh, if you make a mistake, <laughs> nobody knows about it. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. Winnipeg comes back to the Grey Cup in 01 and they meet the Calgary Stampeders. And that yeah. game to me, uh, Winnipeg was such a powerhouse. It stunned me that they lost. Well, that's one of the worst memories uh, in the history of this franchise, as long as I've been close to it. And, uh, you know, the people who were in charge of that team, Lyle Bauer and, and the rest of the group, they're not involved anymore. But those who were involved and played on that team, have never gotten over it. Milt Stiegel, Kahari Jones, Charles Roberts, the whole gang, they had such a good team. And Calgary, you know, came in with an 8-10 and 10 record and really didn't, well, I would say didn't have deserve to win. They won the game and good for them. They blocked the punt and did a few other things. But, yeah, the Bombers felt they just didn't play well enough that game. They made too many mistakes. And it's a great cup that uh, I can still remember going in the Bomber locker room after the game. And it was shock devastation, disbelief among the players. Like, how could we lose to an 8-10 and 10 team? I think they were 14-4 and four that year. They won 12 games in a row that year, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah, that was a tough one. And, and it took years for them to get over. And like I say, some of them still haven't. I never will. And then 2007, you're cruising, well, in a very difficult East final. You seem to be getting the game in hand. And all of a sudden, Kevin Glenn yeah. recovers a fumble and comes out of it with a broken arm. Yeah, they had a. I remember the Bombers had a very poor first half. Kevin Glenn had a very poor first half, and then he had an outstanding second half. And they were on the verge of kind of nailing it down. And it's a matter of who you talk to to determine what went wrong. But Kevin was going to hand the ball off to Charles Roberts, 
And uh, either Charles wasn't there, he went the wrong way, maybe Kevin went the wrong way. Kevin wound up with the ball, got tackled and broke his, broke his arm and couldn't play in the Great Cup game. And so Ryan Dinwiddie had to do. And, uh, you know, Ryan did, for a guy who hadn't played hardly at all, he did fine. He did the best he could, and they barely lost that game to Saskatchewan. But we've always, those of us around the team, have always believed that if Glenn hadn't been hurt, they'd have won that game. Of course, we'll never know, but that's that's a feeling we had. Well, and that's something that will haunt Kevin Glenn as well. Yeah, I mean, Kevin's, one of the knocks on Kevin is his great career as he's had. He's never won a great cup, and that was a great chance for him to win a great cup, and it was taken away by an injury. Finally, 2019 rolls around. Yeah, and of all people, Zach Kolaris is leading you into the Grey Cup in Calgary. Well, that's uh, there's so many fascinating stories around this franchise, as there is every franchise, Don, and the Rough Riders and Eskimos, the Stampeders. But the Bombers had a very good team in 2019, but they went into a late season slide. And then Matt Nichols got hurt. So now they're playing Chris Streller at quarterback. And, you know, he's hanging in there and keeping them close, but they're losing games. And at the very last minute before the trade deadline, Kyle Walters, the GM, pulls a deal to bring Zach Kolaris in because it was clear at that point that Matt Nichols could not come back. There was a belief all along that he would maybe be ready to play, but it was clear at that point that he was done for the year. So Kolaris comes in, hangs around for a couple of weeks, backing up, learning the system, and then goes in in the final game of the regular season and helps them with a last-minute sensational win over Calgary. And that I've said many times, and I say to people, that game turned, I think, their entire mentality, their season, their attitude around. And Kolaris provided a spark, a leadership tool uh, that was hard to put your finger on, but you could see it and you could feel it. He has a presence about him. He really does. And he's had a tough career with all his injuries and everything else. But boy, he's a, he's, I think he's a special player. And he sure was then for the Bombers who had to buy the final week of the season, had to go on the road, win in Calgary, win in Saskatchewan, and beat a Hamilton team that was 15-3 and three in Calgary. I know a lot of people have said, not just me, that that was one of the most impressive playoff runs in the history of Canadian football for two reasons. They won two road games, the semifinal and the final, against two teams with the best records in the league, right? And then they won the Grey Cup in Calgary against a team with a 15-3 and three record. It was an amazing run, one that I'll never forget. And when I talk about all the great years the Bombers have had and all the wonderful things I've witnessed, that run at the end of 2019 is, is right at the top for me. That defense, every game in the playoffs, shaved a point off of what they allowed. Yeah, they, they had a pass rush that was just, you know, Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat. And the guys in the middle, too, were, were really good. Yeah, they had a real good group up front, uh, Adam Big Hill in the middle, and they had good special teams, a great kicker, of course, and Justin Medlock. But the defense uh, wreaked havoc. They were uh, Willie Jefferson's an impact player. You know that. I'm talking about big-time impact player. Jackson Jeffcoat's not far behind. He doesn't get quite the, the publicity and the, the cred that uh, Willie gets, but he's really good. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so unfortunate that we lost the 2020 season because I think Jeffcoat was on the verge of becoming a real star. And hopefully he will, you know, return to that form when they play again in 2021. But, that, yeah, that defense, they were outstanding all year long, but in particular in the playoff run. Now, you mentioned off the top that you worked with Kenny Plain as your color analyst. You must have had a, an amazing group of people that were up there in the booth with you over the years. 
Well, so Kenny was the first guy, and of course, he's a legend here in Winnipeg. He's often viewed by people as the greatest bomber of all time. He's still with us, by the way. Kenny's still alive and, and going strong. Um, Jack Wells, Jack Matheson, who wrote for the Winnipeg Tribune. He was their feature columnist for many years and a real media uh, powerhouse guy here in Winnipeg. And Mitch Zelnoski did color for me for many years. Jeff Courier, who did Saskatchewan games for many years. He and I did color together. Doug Brown now the last, and Joe Poplowski. Joe and I did uh, the games. He was my color guy for a lot of years. We had a great time together too. He and I are, remain friends today. Uh, and Doug Brown has been with me the last number of years. And uh, we've hit it off very, very well. Doug's excellent. He just does a superb job describing things and, you know, painting a picture for the fans. So, yeah, I've been, uh, I hope I haven't missed anybody, but I've been fortunate to have some great partners who've become great friends. It's raining here, by the way, in our sunroom. I don't know if this is disrupting the noise very much. Just a little bit. I can hear it. Yeah. I imagine other than Grey Cups, you've had some amazing games that you've called or, uh, or really great moments that stand out. Are there any that come to mind right now? Oh, boy. Um, well, there's so many great, great cup games. Uh, the one in, uh, at least track of the years now, would be the late 80s when uh, Saskatchewan and Hamilton played and Kent Austin was the Saskatchewan quarterback. What was the final score? 40? 40... 43-40. A lot of people think that was the greatest great cup game ever, and I wouldn't disagree with them on that. I remember... The games in that Edmonton run, one against Ottawa, they played against an Ottawa team that was, you know, five and 13 or five and 11. And they played 16 games in five and 11. And they had no business being on the same field as the Edmonton Eskimos and nearly beat them. Uh, but the Warren Moon rallied the Eskimos to victory. I don't know. There's just so many of them, Don. They, they run together. But that 80s, I think it was the 80, that was the 89 or 87 game. 89 Saskatchewan Hamilton. Yeah, that's the game that, uh, from all of them, it was probably high scoring, exciting plays, drama. The stadium was full. People are going crazy. There was a game in Hamilton, too, in a snowstorm when Doug Flutie was quarterbacking. Uh, again, I lose track of the years, but uh, that's the last game that was played in Hamilton, I believe, the last great cup game that was played in Hamilton. And that was some sensational game, too. So there's been all kinds of them, but there's a couple that I can think of. How about Kevin Glenn to Milt Stiegel, 100 yards on the final play? Well, yeah. You know, it's funny. When, when Milt is asked for the favorite play of his career, that's the one he talks about is the 100-yard pass on the final play of the game. I still remember that like it was yesterday. You know, the Bombers had really controlled that game. And Charles Roberts fumbled late. And, and Edmonton went in and scored. And so the Bombers are on the verge of losing a game that they deserve to win, that they had controlled and every statistical, empirical bit of evidence you could pull up, they deserve to win that game. But it, here they are, now they're going to lose the game unless lightning strikes. And I can still remember thinking to myself, and you're, you're describing the last play, you know, well, it's second down and 10 on the 10 year. You know, the game's over, right? Here we go. The last play of the game, barring a penalty, Kevin Glenn in the shotgun. And he throws it along down the left side for Stiegel. He's got it, and he's gone. Milt Stiegel's going all the way for a touchdown on the last play of the game. A 100-yard touchdown pass. Stiegel caught the ball between two stunned Edmonton defenders around center field. I don't think he could believe it himself. And there was nobody left to beat, and he took it into the end zone. 
Well, if justice is to prevail, as John just suggested, it just did. And who could have imagined an ending like that? People said to me, who were listening to the game afterward, they were getting ready to go to bed or whatever, and then they heard me screaming, and nobody could believe what happened. It was, uh, it was quite something. And it was, of all the plays, and then, you know, the one I like to talk about is when Kevin Glenn had that little flip to Milt Stegall when he broke the record, the all-time record for career touchdowns. And that was at Winnipeg Stadium. And I have never, and I've told this story many times, I have never, ever heard Winnipeg Stadium louder than it was that night. We could virtually feel the stands shaking. Uh, the fans went crazy and, and the, the applause went on for four or five minutes. It was really a, a wonderful, wonderful moment and a great memory. That's awesome. It, Milk Stiegel, toast of the town. Well, he's still a big deal here. Yeah, he is. I think about, you know, the players who were here and who were great fan favorites. And of course, Kenny Plain. There's been a lot of them, but Milk's right up there. You know, the, the fans loved him. He was a great player. He never won a championship. I say he, it's a team game, right? The Bombers never won a championship. They should have. They should have won a couple with him uh, on the teams he played on because the teams were that good. And that's just the way it goes in sport. There's a long list of great players who've never won championships in all sports. But, yeah, he was a terrific player, an exciting player, great ambassador for the club, wonderful in the community, still is. He comes back and does some activities in the community. So, yeah, he would, uh, if you made a list of Blue Bomber heroes, Milk would be up there on, on the Mount Rushmore with two or three others, three or four others, maybe. Where does Bud Grant fit in that? Bud Grant's right up there, too. He was, again, as before my time, those Bomber teams in the 50s and 60s uh, won four Grey Cups. Uh, they were fantastic, wonderful. And Bud was a spectacular coach. He proved that in Winnipeg. He proved it when he went to the Minnesota Vikings, although they never won a Super Bowl. But yeah, he's uh, he's on the Mount Rushmore too for sure. I'd maybe have to expand Mount Rushmore a little bit because he'd be he'd be up there. When you talk about Blue Bomber legends, okay, and legends is a word you don't want to take lightly. Bud Grant for sure, Kenny Plain, Milt, Milt is there, Dieter Brock I would say is there. Now there'd be a few others, and I don't want to miss anybody here, but they're the ones that immediately come to mind. And there's some players from that. Leo Lewis, I shouldn't leave out Leo Lewis. Boy, oh boy, he was something else from those Bud Grant teams. So, you know, we've had a lot of great players here over the years, before my time and during my time. Just walk me through a broadcast day. Let's say you're on the road, you're in Calgary. Yeah. What, what do you have to do to get prepared for that night's game? Well, the prep starts really earlier in the week. You know, I start compiling interviews because on our broadcast, I do the pregame show and the postgame show. We do a two-hour pregame show and I host that show. And then I do the three-hour broadcast. And then we do a one and a one and a half hour post-game show. And I, I host all that. So I'm, I'm kind of in charge of putting it all together. But I start compiling interviews from practice earlier in the week. You know, I get my depth charts from the two teams. It's always easier with the Bombers because you know them so well. And then you start going over those and memorizing numbers, writing little stats into the depth chart. And then on game day, I fine-tune everything. I put all the interviews together and load them up into the computer. And there's anywhere from seven to 10 interviews we'll run during the pregame show, but they all have to be edited, timed out and everything else. And so I do all of that. And at the same time, I'm, you know, making some notes, some game notes that I can refer to as we're going along and then trying to memorize numbers and situations and scenarios. And so it's a pretty full day. I put in, I don't know, it's hours and hours of prep leading up to the day of. And then on the day of, I probably do another 
three, four, five hours, and then go to the stadium and do it. <laughs> when do you like to get to the stadium before a game? When do you like to get yourself settled in? Yeah, so we go on there two hours before. I like to get there three hours before. I like to get there an hour before we go on the air so I can settle into the booth, make sure our mics are all set up, make sure we're connected with the station back home so that there's no technical glitches. And just kind of unwind a little bit and relax and uh, think about players and look at the the numbers again and the game sheets and all the rest of it and just kind of get everything fresh in your mind. And then, uh, and then you're ready. You're ready to do it. Have you ever had a circumstance where the mics didn't work? Well, um, not very many. All over all these many years, there's been very few technical glitches that were a nightmare. I remember when we went to Shreveport to do a game during the U.S. expansion in the 90s, and we got to the broadcast booth. The way it works is all the radio broadcasters in their stations have reciprocal, agree- reciprocal agreements with the other cities. And so their engineers in Shreveport are supposed to set our stuff up so that when we get to the stadium, it's all there. Well, we got there in Shreveport, and it was just a mess. The booth was a mess. There were wires everywhere. And I'm thinking, we're not going to get this thing on the air on time. But we did. But a minute before we were to go to the air, uh, we got everything hooked up and, uh, and ready to roll. But that was an adventure. But over the years, I'd say I've been very lucky. cgob has been very lucky that we've had very few major glitches of any kind. We've talked a little bit about the fact that we didn't play in 2020 how hard was that for you not to be at the stadium not to be around the the team well it was hard and I'll tell you why and I have to say that and it's raining hard here I'm sorry Don I hope this isn't disrupting the audio too much the worst part of 2020 was the Bombers had won the Great Cup in 2019 and they had a really good team coming back virtually all the players were coming back Uh, star players, guys in their absolute primes. And there was every chance that the Bombers were going to have a great run at a second straight Great Cup championships. I missed that. And I know the players and the coach feel cheated, although there's nothing any of us can do about what happened. Uh, But they they feel really bad that they couldn't play that year. And I have to say that I've never had a summer off because football plays in the summer since I started doing Bomber games in 74. And I had the summer of 2020 off and I quite enjoyed it. I played a lot of golf. Uh, we got to our cottage a little more than we normally do. Uh, so it wasn't all bad. You know, I had a lot of, a lot of good summer days on the golf course, but I, I missed it. And I missed it because it had a chance to be a really memorable bomber season. Sometime in the next 10 to 14 days, we should have an announcement whether or not the CFL will go ahead in 2021 in August. Yeah. We don't know if they'll delay maybe start in September. Is there a, a number at which you think we've got to play? Oh, yeah, they have to play this season. Bottom line is they have to play. Now, I hope they can play 14 starting on August the 5th. If they have to play 12, maybe starting later in August or even on Labor Day, I think we can live with that. But they got to get on the field. They have to get on the field out of sight, out of mind. I believe in that. You know, and I think people, I think there's an appetite out there for Canadian football more than there's ever been. And I, that might, I might be proven wrong, and I hope they can have some fans in the stands. And, of course, it's, that's a critical component. I, I don't think they will play unless they can have some fans. And as you and I speak, it's shaping up as though that's a possibility, although COVID is in charge. It's, it's been in charge for the last year and a half almost. But they have to play, and I think they will. Vaccines are rolling out, I think, even faster than what a lot of people were expecting, which does bode well for 
COVID to be held at bay, which means we can get fans in the stands. Yeah, well, and Alberta has opened up. I mean, the, the, the premier there, Jason Kenney, has said they're going to be open for the summer. And I think Edmonton is kind of on a, a similar track. And, uh, you know, Manitoba, as you and I speak, we're, we're going through a bit of a tough time with COVID. But we expect that will, in the next two or three weeks, will improve dramatically, at least we're hoping it will. Ontario and Quebec, have, things have improved there. So the signs are good. You know, I guess the thing you fear is there might be some sort of a setback again and one of these variants rolls in. And who knows? We're in such a predictable period of our lives in that regard that it's it's impossible to really know what the future is. But I would say the signs are all trending in the right way right now. The CFL and the XFL are having discussions and there's a lot of non-disclosure agreements surrounding them. You've been on Twitter quite a bit championing the Canadian game. Well, yeah, and I have been on Twitter, and I've been very loud in my support of maintaining the Canadian Football League as is for all its warts and blemishes and all its financial crises that it's had over the years. And I know that the pandemic put the CFL in a financial crisis unlike it's never been in before. I get that totally. Nobody has to explain that to me. I understand. I've just never been sold on these new football leagues in the U.S., being any sort of salvation for anybody. And I know The Rock is involved and he's got lots of money behind him. And I, I sometimes think the, the, the people who are sort of pushing for this are kind of being charmed and seduced in a way by the fact that it's The Rock and this charismatic superstar actor. And that's just me. You know, that's kind of the way I see it. But the XFL, what's the XFL ever done? You know, how does the CFL benefit from being involved with the XFL? That's the question I ask, and nobody can really answer it. I hear these sort of obtuse references to, well, marketing possibilities. Well, what is that? Uh, TV possibilities. What makes you think there's big TV money in a league that has, that has XFL teams and teams in Canada that nobody in the U.S. has ever heard of? Uh, you know, so I just, I don't quite see the positives in this that might be down the road that others do. And until I do, I will speak out against it. I love the Canadian football. I think it's a unique part of our culture, our heritage. I'm disappointed that our federal government hasn't helped the league more. Uh, There are hundreds of thousands of Canadians who go to the games and love it. It's in all of our major cities. It provides job opportunities. It provides an opportunity for Canadian football players to live their dreams and become professional football players because of the ratio that demands 20 Canadians on every team. And Don, the thought of losing that breaks my heart because I know all these wonderful kids, Canadian kids who played football and have become stars like Andrew Harris, never get that chance without the ratio. So it kills me that that, that that might not be there down the road as a great Canadian who loves this game and loves the Canadian component of it. I know about all the financial problems. Let's solve them in Canada. That's all I'm saying. Let's solve them up here. And I know it's easy for me to say that, right? Okay, it's easy for me to say that. I don't know the alligators that Randy Ambrose is wrestling with. I don't know what MLSC in Toronto, what kind of pressure they're putting on them to hook up with The Rock. But I, I just I just want it to remain the Canadian. Let's find a way to get it solved here. Let's get new owners in BC, uh, the new owners in Montreal seem like they're on the right track. Fans are coming back there in 2019 when the season ended. Toronto, I have no answers for Toronto. 
I, I don't know how to fix that. I just don't. I just want the Canadian Football League to remain the Canadian Football League, and I'll end it there. Just out of curiosity, was there ever a thought in your mind that if the Rough Riders job came up, that you might jump at it? <laughs> uh, well, no, look, when we moved to Winnipeg, my wife and I, and we had our kids here, we love living in Winnipeg. I've had chances. I've had chances to move on over my career, but I work at a radio station that's devoted to sports coverage, uh, that's treated me very well, that's provided me with opportunities that I couldn't have imagined elsewhere. Uh, we think it's a terrific city to live in. I've had a chance, chances to leave, and I never have. And I can't think of anything that would have uh, sort of taken me out of Winnipeg. I just like it here. You know what? Hey, I don't mess with happy. My theory has always been don't mess with happy. And my family and I, were, we've been very happy here. I've been happy in my work. So why would I, why would I leave? Makes total sense to me. I can't agree more. Yeah, I think, I think it does too. <laughs> well, we'll get you out on this. Uh, if we go ahead with 2021. Oh, by the way, what do you think of the new Edmonton name, the Elks? Well, that's the name that's been speculated all along that it was going to be. Yeah, it's it's fine. I kind of like it. I think it's good. How do you feel about it? I think it's it's nice. I think it, it harkens a little bit back to their history. I know it was only for a few months that they had the name before. Having said that, uh, the logo looks great. I think the, they teased the, the helmet look, which was looking pretty sharp with the antlers on it. it. I think they did very, very well. Yeah. That was a challenge for them. And so, yeah, I think they've I think they've come up with the right answer. Once we get this season underway, where do you think the Bombers are going to be come Grey Cup Sunday? Well, I think they are the team to beat in the West. I really do. And I know the Riders are going to have an, a good team again this year. Bo Levi Mitchell, is he's determined to come back and, and establish himself as a top force in Calgary. And the Stampeders are always good as long as John, John Huffnagel's there. They'll be good. Edmonton has made some changes but, you know, they're going to be a tough team. And Mike Riley's probably going to lead BC back from the problems they had two years ago. So uh, the West is always tough. You know, it's never easy to win the West. But the Bombers will be right there. I'll be shocked if they're not. They're bringing back most of the players that were there in 2019. I guess the one concern I would have or the one thought I'd have is that some of the Bombers' key players are now two years older. Andrew Harris, uh, you know, and there's a few others that, that have added some years and Stanley Bryant, uh, if Stanley ever heard that, he, he cuffed me upside the head, but that would be a bit of a concern of mine. But if they get everybody back here and, and with, at the same talent level that they had in 2019, I think they're going to be the team to beat. I kind of get the feeling that because the players have been off for a full season, that there's going to be so much pent up energy yeah. on opening night that these guys are going to be flying. Yeah, I think so too. I, I I know there's, I said earlier, there's an appetite, I think, for the league among the fans. And I know for sure there's an appetite among the players to get back on the field and do the thing that they love. I can't wait. I got my fingers crossed on that everything sort of levels off and settles down on the health front and we can have a safe and exciting 2021 CFL season. Where can people find and follow you? Well, they can't follow me because I'm not on Facebook or on Instagram. I am on Twitter. <laughs> I tweet every now and then. But otherwise, I'm just a guy who takes out the garbage bins every Sunday night on Cathcart Street in Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> That's my big profile. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was a real treat to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure, Don.
Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.